There's a we have a new puppy and my cat has been using my office as her fortress of solitude. So she's really excited that I'm in here. <laughs> and I keep trying to tell her very right. kindly, mommy's working right now. <laughs> is she is she uh I love you meower? No, she's more like, I love you. I'm gonna strope on literally everything you're touching. So she knocked over my LaCroix, oh. she's knocked over my noise, oh. my pop filter. Yeah. Here, have a stick. Yeah, that's a, that's 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 a that's a real problem. <laughs> yeah, she's very fluffy, and I can't see through her giant butt. All right, hey, all right. <laughs> well, cool. on that note. experience i guess we're hi. starting we're, hey monica yeah we can start yeah hi, hi. how are you how much does it go I, oh boy you, I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't that you didn't catch the recording of you singing a strong bad email when <laughs> jessica entered, entered the you, call you emails and it just immediately ooh ah email it was not even okay never never mind it was it was fantastic it was beautifully timed the kind of comedy that you couldn't write <laughs> you had to be anyway there. yeah anyway we are a podcast with a deeper look at the play experience and the finer details of running and writing games we are queer women speaking do- with authority about games oh hello <laughs> let me do it also we sw- also we swear die mad about it I'm... did you see we have a bingo with oh i'm sorry oh who, who are you yeah, who are you? I'm I'm Monica. <laughs> I'm <Who> Ray. <laughs> Bingo. <sighs> I'm already like <laughs> the last time our guest was here, it was just Monica, so I'm yeah. sure it went like really smoothly. But now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that someone made a misdirected mark Bingo, and yes. several of the squares involved, like one of them was Margaret. One of them was die mad about it. Yeah, I didn't read it the whole way the first time, and I was like, "What? No, die mad about it? What's wrong with you?" And oh, then there's I definitely realized, that, yeah. I realized a second later, and I deleted the tweet shortly after everyone saw it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's how that goes. So, yes, yeah, usually how that goes. So we're we're not here alone. Um, we have a guest. Yes, we have a guest. Hi. Hello. Hello, guest. I'm here. Yes. Hello. Yes, would Jessica? you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. I would love to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Jessica Hammer. I am—I uh, have a fancy title, which I uh, am supposed to use at every opportunity. I'm the Thomas and Lydia Moran Assistant Professor of Learning Science at Carnegie Mellon University. So cool. And it's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, I've been teaching game design for uh, well over a decade at this point. And um, that's sort of my job at CMU is, among other things, to teach game design and also to do research on how we can improve the game design process, uh, everything from how we educate new designers to how we give and get feedback on games, uh, especially from playtests. And uh, I hear that that's on the agenda today. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it's, we're so glad to have you here. We were going to talk about playtests, but you are the expert. <laughs> we're very glad to have our guest expert on playtesting, Dr. Jessica Hammer. That's my very oh, great pleasure. Cat. Love to talk about this. Damn. And about cats. Okay. Yeah, I'm really oh, sorry. 
Cats and play tests are two of our favorite things, too. Oh, my God. Nope. Okay. All right. Listen, sweetie. I'm really sorry. I'm going to put her in her box. Put her in her box. Get your box, pad. (laughs) Jeez. There you go. Okay. There we go. All right. She's in her box. She gets to stare at me and pass down judgment from her box. All right. Cool. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We, uh, playtesting is really really important to us we've we've talked about it a little bit but haven't really gotten into like the meaty details of like why you should and how you should and you know some best practices so uh we're gonna be asking jess here or jess jess jessica either one is fine (laughs) i know i know who you who you mean and it's not the cat it's not the cat. <laughs> we're gonna be asking. Uh, we're gonna be asking Jessica to uh, please share some of her expertise expertise with us and with you, our beautiful listeners. Right. You you've put yourself as the first question in this outline. It was me, and then you added yourself there. So yes, I go first. Go first, do it. <laughs> After my cat moves as her moves her butt, I will. Okay. Um. Honestly, one of the things that slows me down the most and i know this is such a like a 101 level question um how do you deal with the nervousness that comes with asking total strangers to critique your game do you have any advice for anyone experiencing like play test fright absolutely um and i'll say that at least in my experience play test fright never goes away it's always nerve-wracking to put something that you've put your effort and your uh and a piece of yourself into and then to put it into the hands of strangers right i call it like pushing pushing my little fledglings out of the nest to see if they can fly on their own which they <laughs> mostly can't the first time um and so i've developed some techniques that i actually teach my students for how we um uh, uh, reframe the experience of being nervous about asking for a playtest. One of which is run toward the fear. So the idea is that being afraid to show your work to other people is a normal part of the creative process. And it's a sign that you should do it right now, right? So the, the minute you find yourself starting to be resistant before you can let that resistance build up, do it, do it today. Do it with the version you have. Do it with the version you think is inadequate. Because your job is to train yourself that the fear is a signal to do the thing that you're afraid of. I love that. Um, it's, a very, it's a very useful reframing. Because instead of then being meta-worried about being afraid, you know that when you feel fear, like, that's great. That tells you where you are in your process. It's kind of, it's kind of the signal to just get going right now. Yeah, that's right. Because... you. You don't, you're not afraid of showing someone your game when it's so much of a mess that they couldn't even understand it, right? When you find yourself afraid of showing it, it's because you know that it's far enough along that they could judge you for it. And that tells you that it's time to do that and to take the judgment out of the equation, which is another really hard piece of it. Um, so the second reframing in this area that I teach my students is that um, when you're asking people for feedback on your game, they are never going to be more expert on your game than you are. Therefore, they can't judge you about it. What they can be experts on is their own experience. And so your job is to shut up. Um, and <laughs> I, I, will I will sit in the classroom with my students and watch them play test. And I will sit there and just say, shut up now. You're talking. Nope. Um, <laughs> and it takes a lot of work to shut up because when people play your game, if they get something wrong, 
um, or if they're not playing it the way you intend, or if they're not having a good time, your impulse is to fix it, right? And that is you taking away their expertise on their own experience. What you want to do is understand what's happening and to be curious about what goes wrong. And this is sort of the third reframing that I tell my students, which is that your goal for a good playtest is a playtest where you learn as much as you can. And learning means things need to go wrong for you to learn how to make them better. So if you have a playtest where everything goes the way that you expect, that's actually not particularly useful. And you've, I mean, it's great. There are other reasons to play test, like building community, but you've run a play test that's probably not going to help you improve your game. So being wrong like about some of your design assumptions and having unexpected things happening in a play test, that's actually what you celebrate and be triumphant about. And we do small things in the classroom, like when people give um, really insightful feedback that's about ways that things did not match the designer's goals, that's actually something that we applaud and celebrate. So we'll say, say things like, that's really, that's really useful, or that seems like um, really relevant to their goals, even if they didn't succeed at their goals. And um, those three things, running toward the fear, letting people be experts on their own experience, and trying to get useful playtests rather than successful playtests um, together are really helpful for making playtesting less emotionally wrenching. Dang, uh, useful playtests, not successful playtests. It's like, <laughs> really yeah. sitting with me right now. Uh, so let me, I'll piggyback off of that thought into my question, which is that uh, collecting feedback from playtests means sorting through an enormous amount of information and not all of it good. Um, dealing with the volume of feedback is something I see lots of folks struggle with. So what tips and advice do you have for making sense of that feedback that you get? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so to take a step back, there are sort of three known problems with getting feedback from peers, which is really what your playtesters are, right? Whether they're game design experts or not, uh, you're sort of treating them as people who are going to have autonomy when they're the ones playing the game without you in the room. Um, and so problem one is just having people engaged in the feedback process. And if you're getting an enormous amount of information from your playtests, that's actually really good. You want to keep an eye out and make sure that everybody gets to contribute in the feedback process. But generally with role-playing games, if you've gotten people to commit to sitting down for a couple of hours with your game, you've dealt with engagement. People are on board. The second problem is, as you suggest, feedback quality. Now, the question is, what does good mean? So you can work to improve the amount of high quality feedback that you get. Um, and I'm using high quality rather than good because good can mean a lot of different things. Like good means feedback that makes me feel good about myself or um, feedback that um, gives me an excuse to do the thing that I was going to do anyways. So high quality feedback has three qualities. First, it's specific. So it's not this game is great, but rather this rule or this moment made me feel this way. Um, it's critical. So uh, it's actually telling you where the game is deviating from your design goals and it's actionable. So it gives you um, uh, uh, a way to move forward with it. Uh, bonus. Uh, I guess your your bonus experience fourth quality is is for the feedback. Thank you, <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate yeah. that. Is for the feedback to be justified. So not only are people giving you specific, critical, and actionable feedback, but they're able to explain to you 
why that's the feedback they gave and what in their experience led them to do that. So you can actually start to deal with your enormous volume of feedback by, first of all, just looking at the feedback you get using that as a filter for quality. So um, is it fe- is it specific? Is it critical? Is it actionable? And um, you can kind of s- use those three things as your lenses, right? So I have a lot of specific feedback. I have only a little bit of critical feedback. I have a medium amount of actionable feedback. And those are some ways to filter out the, the uh, feedback that you want to start with um, and pay special attention to. And one of the things that we found is that you can use really simple techniques once you know that that's what high quality feedback looks like. So you can do things like rate um, the feedback from one to five. Just t- put each piece of feedback on a note card and just put a number on it. Go with your gut. Uh, keeping those three qualities in mind, and then use the highest number, you know, try to start with the the sort of highest quality feedback. Um, Another really simple thing that you can do is you can go through and take a pass through the feedback you get and look at whether it's aligned with your design goals or not aligned with your design goals. So let's say I'm trying to make a horror game, and I get a lot of feedback about how funny the game was, and then I get some feedback about moments that were scary in the game. So If my goal is to make a scary game, then I'm going to want to focus on the feedback that has to do with moments where it was scary or failed to be scary. I can also pivot my goals if I look at that big set of feedback, right? So I can just sort it into piles. Really simple. Index card sorting is one of your best techniques. If I have this giant pile about the wonderful, hilarious, funny experiences that people had in the game, maybe I actually want to pivot my goals and go toward, you know, the 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 horror, comedy, kind of scream type um, game experience, right? So you can actually change what your goals are when you see what feedback you get. Um, the final thing that you can do to try to make sense of feedback is to um, use, is to talk about it with someone else. So we, my, my research lab led by my PhD student now uh, about to be a professor starting in August. So proud of her. Yeah. Dr. Amy Cook. Yeah. That life milestone, I will just say. My very first PhD student, often, <laughs> often her first uh, job starting uh, in like two months. Uh, so she led a study looking at interactive learning techniques. And interactive learning basically means you're making something, like you're generating new knowledge, but you're doing it with someone else. So if you can find a partner to sit down with you and do some of these simple techniques like rating or pile sorting and then talk to you about it. Why did you put these things in this pile? What's going on here? That's going to help you actually make sense of the feedback you get, even if that person is not an expert on your game, because they're going to make you articulate out loud your understanding of the feedback instead of just keeping it all locked in your head. And it's going to steer you away from some of the Um, what I would call unhelpful patterns of reflecting on feedback, like 20 people said X, so therefore I should do X, right? It's not a popularity contest, but we do see designers use this kind of like frequency metric to analyze feedback. And I think it's because they don't know a different way to do it. So thinking about quality and thinking about alignment with goals can help you deal with large amounts of feedback usefully 
doing it collaboratively with someone else, even if they're not your co-designer, is going to help you do it more successfully. Yeah, I've definitely offered to be the person at like Metatopia who sits down with you and goes, all right, let's let's talk through the things people said and to try to help people get away from that that feedback loop of like, well, 20 people said my horror game was funny, so I'm clearly a failure, you know? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Or, you know, we see all, I see all kinds of things uh, when I, when I work with designers, it could be, I'm clearly a failure. It could be, oh, 20 people said my horror game is funny. So now I'm making a comedy game, even though that's not what they want to do. Right. So there are different ways that you can respond to that moment of the feedback, not aligning with the feedback that you wanted. Um, But you know, some of them are more and less helpful than others. Yeah, it's true. Well, we've reached about the halfway point, so why don't we? I've just been listening, later. like I, I know, just wrapped. <laughs> like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> You've discovered that I'm a ranter, so I will rant as long as you will allow me. No, I, I mean, I can, I can tell that you like teach this, and you teach yeah. it really effectively. Um, Thank you. I, what, what's what's actually most interesting to me right now is um, my. My primary uh, career is a uh, fiction writer, mm. and a lot of a lot of the advice you're giving could actually apply to the feedback you receive when you do like alpha and beta reading for your for your work. Yes, and that uh, and it's it's just really good techniques. That's intentional, actually. So our research is meant to start. We started in the game design classroom. Now we're working with industry, so we actually work with um, uh, you know professional game design companies. Uh, to implement some of these techniques inside studios. And we're also moving out to other domains. Uh, we haven't moved to fiction writing yet, but uh, we'd love to <laughs> try some of these techniques in your context and see what needs to be adapted. It's a, it's a very lonely position. I don't exactly have like a dev team with mm. me. <laughs> well, maybe that's one of the things that would need to be, um, uh, you know, thought through and how these methods get adapted is where do you find a partner to use some of these interactive techniques um, if you're in uh, a lonely profession, one might say, right? And there right, are things yeah, that, yeah. you know, you can look for in a partner. And actually, maybe I'll get to talk about that later when I talk about some of the things I look for in playtesters. Yeah. All right. Okay. Looking forward to that. Um, so, Monica, yeah. I'm going to mute our guest. I, and I don't mean this in, I, I hope that's not impertinent. <laughs> no. nope. I'm muting you. Prevent me from having opinions. <laughs> don't talk during this part. Okay. <laughs> I love She's how muted now. I love how every other guest you're like, shut up, mute. And then <laughs> you're like, I hope I don't offend you by muting you during our break. I still have I still have like nightmares and, and dreams about being a university student. So I feel like I'm in like a little I feel a little bit like I'm in class right now. So I'm like, oh, okay. Sorry, Professor, hang on a second. I have to mute you. <laughs> Sorry. Brought to you. You know what? I'm just talking over you. I'm sorry. Jessica, no. just enjoy us being bad at reading our own mid-episode. Let's take a clean take on that one. <laughs> BXP in the mid-episode break room are brought to you by the Misdirected Mark Network. Usually you do a cute little ding and you didn't do it again this time. Oh, I was wondering why you paused. Yeah, I'm sorry. No. I, I was looking at the, the following where you're like, huge shout out to our artist. I was like, that's old. We don't it is old. I copied an old thing, but still huge shout out to Nino. It's the copy that's at the top of the outline. Bing! 
All right. I did it. Become a BXP patron. Even $3 a month will get you access to our outline, two mini episodes of bonus content every month, and our actual play. I spent a lot of time on the actual play. I really hope you guys are enjoying it. Bonus content goes up three times a month. Also, if you'd rather support BXP without committing to monthly payments, you can still buy us a coffee. Kofi.com slash BXPcast. Why do they spell it Kofi? I don't know. It should be coffee. And... You can buy our stuff, including products made by our guests. You can also check out our new merch page with t-shirts, mugs, phone, cases. Okay, one more time. (laughs) (laughs) T-shirts, mugs, phone cases, notebooks, and more. Yeah. Something cool. Support us while doing it. BXPcast.com slash BXP swag. Do you want me to do do the last bit? You should do the next one. If you like bonus experience, you'll also like Wednesday evening podcast all stars. Brett, Tom, Kevin, Chris, and Andy get together and play games that get edited down into an audio drama for your ears. Join this crew of all star players as they create stories from the games you love. Okay, I think I see the break. We haven't had like any like new news to share in our break for quite some time. It seems like after the Patreon bubble, once we get this streaming thing squared away because everybody just came back from origins then we'll have oh, something right. new okay shh. yes but that's it. not a thing yet all right i'm gonna can, i'm gonna unmute, unmute our guest unmute our guest hi hello you're back you got a very hello. authentic experience experience there <laughs> i feel like i understand your podcast a lot better now <laughs> it's ten percent recording, ninety percent editing to make us sound competent. <laughs> what about witty banter? Plus fifty percent witty banter. Plus fifty percent fueled witty by witty banter. There you go. <laughs> Plus five swearing. Um, all right, so uh, back to our topic. Uh, I know every game is going to have every game is its own animal. They're all going to have their own parameters. But in your opinion, are there questions or requests that every playtest should ask of its testers? That's a good question. Um, I'm going to answer in two different ways. So actually, I, there are questions that are more and less useful to ask playtesters. But then I'm going to share a very specific method that I use in my classroom, that I teach, and that I use in my game design cl- practice. Um, and that will help you get extremely meaty feedback on your game in a very short period of time. So the first question is what to ask playtesters. Um, my research group actually collected a bunch of questions that game designers asked their their uh, uh, viewers or playtesters for feedback. Like what are game designers actually asking? And we categorized them into four categories just based on what we saw in the data. So there were questions that were about brainstorming, like generate ideas for us, share your experience, critique, like tell us what's wrong. Um, but the questions that improve, that got the best feedback were the fourth kind of question, which is improve questions. And this was about the game designer would articulate their goal and then say, how can we improve at reaching this goal? So for example, how could we improve our rules to be more simple? And um, broadly speaking, I think that whatever your game is, whatever your play test is, if you think about how you can frame your questions in terms of improve, um, that will help you get better feedback from your play testers. Uh, by the way, improve questions were not only the best, but they were actually the least used in the wild. So 
just by being aware of this, knowing this fun mm. fact, even if you move the needle on improve questions a little bit, it's going to improve the quality of feedback you get a lot because most people don't frame their questions this way. So that's the general thing. Um, a specific technique that I use is called uh, IOTA, which is an acronym for, uh, it's a four-stage feedback process that stands for experience, observe, the, uh, theorize, and advise. Or really, sorry, can we cut that? The specific technique that I use is called IOTA, and that's an acronym for uh, the four stages, which are experiences, observations, theories, and advice. And what you're basically doing is getting your playtesters and ideally observers of your playtest to um, stage the kind of feedback that they're giving you so that you get feedback that is more specific, critical, and justified, and that saves the advice about what you should do until the end. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen playtests where people will immediately jump to saying, well, what you should do is X. Um, and that's generally extremely <laughs> unhelpful feedback. Uh, mm -hmm. You need to know what the real problem is in order to assess what you should do and assess the value of any advice you get. So in IOTA, first you say experiences, right? If you play tested the game, share your experiences in the form of I felt, I chose, I thought, I did, right? But you can only talk about concrete moments that you want to surface. Um, Next phase, observations. You add in observations. If you only have playtesters and you don't have observers, it's also observations of things other people did. Like, I saw Jane laugh really hard at this moment of the game, right? Um, and if you have observers of your playtest, they can also chime in and say, well, you know, um, I saw Shauna um, really frowning, um, but I don't know if it was concentration or if she was upset. Right. And then she can chime in and say, this was my experience at this moment in the game. So you're adding in not just what I felt I saw, I chose, I did, but what other people noticed about me, about the game system and about the experience as a whole. Next, you ask everybody, right, both players and any observers to share their theories that explain the data that you got. And this allows people to be, ironically, much more critical, give you much meatier critical feedback than they would otherwise, because it's not being framed as explicitly critical. It's not, here's what's bad about your game, or here's how to fix your game. It's, these things happened. This is why I think they happened. Notice that the framing of moving from experiences to observations and only then to theories also requires people to justify the theories that they have, right? So you actually push people to say, because of this thing that I did and this thing that I saw, I think the explanation is this. Only in the final phase are people allowed to offer advice. So my theory is that the game rules were uh, so hard to process that people couldn't make good strategic decisions. Um, and my advice would be, the next time you play test this, Play test this three times before you actually start to try to figure out how good the game is or rewrite your rules to make them easier to understand, right? Because you're not getting anything useful about the game itself. Um, there's some details to how you implement this framework. Um, I've uh, got a research paper on this that is in press and has been for a few months, should be coming out uh, in the next few weeks from ETC Press. Um, and you can download that and read it for free online. And it's meant to be, it's oriented toward practitioners, not just researchers. So the idea is that you can pick up that paper, skip to the section on how do I do this, and you can do this too. 
Um, I run this in about 15, 20 minutes in class after a play test. And my students report that it's some of the meatiest and richest feedback that they've ever gotten on their games. So I highly recommend it. Damn, that's some powerful stuff. Yeah, that um, just made me think. Uh, do you remember, Ray, from our uh, our episode on playtesting that we did with pandas, uh, where Phil and I sort of briefly disagreed on whether or not you should get to the advice step of EOTA? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. and I, basically I just was realizing in retrospect that my I was like, well, no, you need to, to kind of do this. And I was basically just spelling out the EOTA without realizing that that was like a thing <laughs> yeah well i that's exactly how i came across it is actually i um uh, uh my my student amy came into my game design class and she said you know that thing you're doing is really interesting i said what thing i'm doing she said the thing you're doing where you have students talk about their experiences and only at the end can they talk about their advice i said oh isn't that just a standard like that's just how i've always done playtesting no lots of and people she said no 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 no, no, no advice no. first <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's actually thanks to her it, her noticing that that was a, a thing that I bothered to write this down and, and share it with other people. Oh, I'm, I'm glad that got standardized and like codified into a thing because it had also very much in the same way. It had also been just like the way I presented it. Like, yeah. this is my this is my experience. This yep. is the observation yep. theory. And here's my advice. That's right. So what yep. we did is we sort of went back to understand like, all right, we think this, like we've seen in the classroom, this, this works, but why does it work? So we've actually done the work to build out the theory of why it happens. And that's helping us look for data that is evidence about some of the things that this method accomplishes. Um, when that uh, paper comes out, is it possible for you to just like ping us an email or something and we can actually share that on our platforms too? Yeah, I'd love that. My goal is to get this work into the hands of literally anybody and everybody who does playtesting. So as soon as it's out there, you'll have it and uh, any way you want to share it. Great. Fabulous. Um, let let it be used. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um I, oh, I have the next question too. You do. You, you were on it tonight. Yeah. Yeah. For once. Um, so is there, um, is there a certain type of tester that you look for? Like, do you recruit for specific, I guess, personality traits or eagerness or, or do you prefer to just get as many people testing it as possible, regardless of their, their methods or their credentials? Uh, it's a good question. Look, it depends a little bit on the phase of playtesting and the goals of the game. Um, but my ideal playtester is someone who's willing to be honest and vulnerable. Um, someone who's reflective uh, about their own experiences. Someone who's patient and gives space to others. Um, and also someone who's willing to take notes on what they felt and did. Um, because in a 20-minute playtest, People can pretty well remember back to things that happened. In a two-hour playtest, you're actually only going to get a couple of really good data points. So um, yeah. this is, yeah, and this is it's something called peak end theory. So um, you can, by the way, use this strategically to give people great experiences in games, which is people really only remember the, the, the most exciting thing that happened and stuff and how things end. So if the end of your game is awesome, it can cover a lot of other mistakes, which is both a useful design technique, but also you kind of don't have to cover your own mistakes. Um, so the problem... 
That's excellent advice for I'm going to be running a I'm going to be running convention games for strangers for the first time in the in the next month. So now I'm just like, okay, good yeah, oh. ending, the end. Yeah, peak <laughs> end. That's all you need. You need one great moment during the game and you need a great ending and you can manipulate people's brains too. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> but when you're playtesting, this is actually a real detriment um because uh if people only remember like the most exciting thing and the the most recent, the end of the game, you're not actually getting feedback to help you with the rest of the experience. So I uh, will often ask people if it's okay if someone sits in the room and takes notes during the game. Um, I will ask if people are okay being videotaped and you kind of have to do a bunch of stuff to make them comfortable with that. Um, And to do stuff like you can then share back to people like, hey, there was a moment when this thing happened Let's revisit that in our minds. Can you reflect back on what you were thinking at this time? So you can help prompt people to get better feedback. But really someone who's willing to take notes in the moment is like made of gold and uh, love them and appreciate them. (laughs) So basically Uh, looking for another academic. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, lots of people are able to take notes or willing to take notes because you're not looking for someone who's... Remember that what people are experts at is their own experience. Right. So you're just looking for someone who is reflective enough in the moment to understand what they're feeling and is willing to write down what's going on when they're feeling a particular way. And that's like that's that's like journaling. If you've ever kept a journal, you are qualified to do this. Yeah, I'm, just, okay. I'm trying to think about all the playtests I've been in at Metatopia and how often I remember to like not interrupt the flow of someone's scene, but just like click my pencil a couple times so there's lead out of it and be like, all right, note to self. Yeah. Yeah, you know, defense rule definitely not work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or whatever, like <laughs> that's right, and that's that's super valuable. So every time you do that, I'm just imagine me thanking you from afar. <laughs> um, Jessica Hammer smiles down on you. Exactly. Uh, you have received the hammer of approval. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so so I but I just want to add I haven't explicitly uh addressed the issue of making sure that my playtest populations are inclusive and that's really mm. really important thinking about how do I get a playtest population that looks like the world and not like our moderately fucked up hobby um is <laughs> is is surprisingly challenging and really important And I just want to tell a little anecdote to illustrate that. I teach these game design classes, and one of the things that I do is during the first class session, I actually run a game design exercise. Everyone in the room makes a game, and then I walk around the room, and I shake everyone's hand, and I say, congratulations, you're a game designer now. Now we're going to make you a good game designer. Uh, (laughs) And I do this because I notice that, you know, my classes tend to be tend to look like the world, right? They tend to be forty five to sixty percent women. They tend to have a you know uh, a lot of diversity in terms of where people come from and people's racial and ethnic background. Um, but the people who feel that they um, sort of are embedded in the world of games are less representative. And so this ritual of sort of um, it's like knighting everyone in the room and saying, you know, congratulations, you are a game designer now, has been really important um, in making people who may have less experience or who may feel like their experience is less central um, understand that their perspectives are valuable and that they are in the that 
insofar as an inner circle exists, that they are it, right? You're a game designer. Now, congratulations, you made a ridiculous game involving three plastic spoons and the penny I made you take out of your pocket. Um, <laughs> all right, that's it. It's That was your initiation ritual. So uh, thinking about how you convey to people that they are the players that you're talking to is its own challenge, probably its own episode, because you can't ever divorce games from the larger culture in which they exist of games and or from the larger culture in which games culture exists. Um, so I just kind of want to put a pin in that because personal qualities are important, but the I want to make games that speak to people who are neither like me nor like the sort of um, stereotype of who matters in games, which just so coincidentally lines up with our model of who is dominant in society. And uh, if those are the only people I'm making games for, then I've failed as a designer. Um, in my uh, academic discipline, we like to say, you are not the user. So that means I need to find players who have different experiences than me. And that's what good playtesting means. Is so. I just nodded there, in agreement is, with great audio. Is there a reason we're not saying straight white men just like straight <laughs> out? <laughs> like, is that something that I need to avoid? <laughs> it, no, I mean, look, the reason I don't say it is actually because the, because I'm a, a little bit too much of an academic to limit it to straight yeah, white okay. men. So if you look, there's, there's a wonderful workshop at, um, uh, 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 DIGRA, the Digital Games Research Association, called Gaming as the Subaltern. This is a fancy theoretical term that basically just means there are a lot of different axes of marginalization. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we often talk about straight white men, and it's actually quite complicated because axes of marginalization include things like um, citizenship, right? Or include things like... Um, uh, religion and class. And so it, it, they have an absolutely spectacular diagram. You can go and look it up all online. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, so basically, I'm just a little bit too aware of what people are, the research that people are doing in this area that expands beyond straightness, whiteness, and maleness. Yeah, and, okay. Right? And that straightness, whiteness, and maleness can different aspects of those identities can be more salient in different contexts. So there are contexts right. where whether or not you're straight doesn't really matter as much as whether as your gender, right? Or there are contexts where your race is going to be the most salient thing about you. So it's it's just now this is me with my academic hat on going in principle yes, but in in practice it's a lot more nuanced than just that straight white man. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think I think we're we're pretty used to the same like four adjectives to describe. It, hello, Oops, we still there? I'm still here. Are you still here? Okay. Oh my I'm god, still my cat is sitting on the mute button. <laughs> hello, hello, your cat. I've been trying to manage her this whole time. <laughs> really successfully. What was I saying? What was You're I saying? We're used to relying um, on the same four adjectives. We're used to relying on the same four adjectives, and and you're right. It's it. I mean, it comes down to a lot more nuance than that. Like, I mean, I wasn't even considering things like citizenship, but yeah, that would, ugh, it's that would create a lot more intersections than what we're used to referring to. That's right. So you know, straight white male, fine, useful shorthand, but not the whole story. Right. 
I think I'm at the end of my questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah just I got a lot of very useful feedback. Yes, you did. <laughs> uh, is there anything you wanted to talk about with us? Yeah, I guess my question for you is, look, you're both um, enthusiastic and expert playtesters. Um, what should I know as I move forward trying to help people do this better? What's something that you've learned in your experience in the field um, that you want to teach me today? Oh, Ooh. <laughs> um, hmm. I, let's see. Let, let me jump on this one, Ray, if you want to think about it. Yeah, I'm still I'll, wrestling a cat. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll think with my mouth. Um, so uh, I have done a lot of playtesting. I've done a lot of work at Metatopia. I've tried to also be a person who offers support to other people. Um, because one of my great talents is being able to sift through a volume of feedback and determine what is quality and what is bullshit. Um, and I definitely think that something, and, and, and you can process this as academically as, you, as you'd like, but I think one of the things we have to consider um, is that sometimes a, a less privileged person, almost always a woman, uh, will receive feedback from a more privileged person almost always one of them straight white men uh <laughs> who uh, who has presented their eota in the entirely wrong order <laughs> um, usually starting with advice uh yep. and then often working backwards which is not the way you should receive it um and it makes them feel small or insignificant or untalented uh hmm. Uh, or like they don't know what they're doing because this person who is sometimes often a person with reputation, because that is often how things go at conventions and such, uh, basically started with the advice and was like, well, your system didn't work and it should do this. And right. this math thing is wrong. And then they feel defensive and belittled, even though that perhaps that's not what that person intended to do. That's still what happened. And I think maybe it's really a, an important thing for us to consider, like either how to support people like that or how to process feedback that's given to you in a way that speaks down to you, even if that's not the intention. Does that make sense? Yes, that's extremely okay. helpful, actually. Okay. Uh, so, and I'll just I'll tell you immediately how that's going to change our work in this area, because okay. you've revealed to me that because we've been working in the game design classroom, we've sort of made the assumption that the playing field is relatively equal or that mm -hmm. if it's unequal, it's unequal in ways where the person in power is more expert at giving feedback. Right. Is, is the, the teacher. Is the teacher. Yeah. And what you're describing is actually the opposite, that the person who has power is the person who's less skilled. Um, mm -hmm. And that's extremely helpful. And we can, I, we can integrate that into the research that we're going to be doing this fall. So thank you. You're welcome. Sometimes that person isn't always less skilled. Sometimes that person is a very skilled designer who is perhaps a, a famous internet personage or, or whatever. Right, but that doesn't mean they're right. skilled at helping other people, right? Correct. They're not skilled Correct. at the thing that they're trying right. to do. Right. Being a they're good not game designer. Like a teacher or that's a... That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's one of the things that we found is that, so we've been working with uh, professional designers as well as game design students, and that it doesn't really matter how good a game designer you are. Um, your skill at giving feedback is is pretty much independent from your skill as a game designer. Definitely. Um, so definitely. <laughs> uh, here's my message to all the dudes who want to give advice: um, get good. 
Uh, it it may come as no surprise to you that I am not particularly intimidated by those people giving me feedback. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know what? You're right. There are people who are. And um, yeah. if you want to give advice, fabulous. Just make sure you're doing, at minimum, an adequate job. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you should maybe li- listen to this episode. <laughs> uh, okay. You're just going to start sending links to this episode to people as they're like, well, here's my advice. You're like, nope. Here's my podcast. Yeah, I'm just episode. I'm just gonna pull my phone out and start playing. <laughs> you can just start from the part where I'm like, get confidence, get please. Get confidence. Good. I'm gonna just set Jessica saying get good to my text <laughs> notification. And look, you know, I, I I I say that, and I'm quite serious about it. But it's also really important to understand that this is a learnable skill. It is very easy to practice. And if you are serious about being somebody who gives fabulous playtest feedback, then you can get there in like like weeks. I mean, I see my students transform in the first three to four weeks of my class um, from people who don't quite know how to do this into people who are giving incredibly thoughtful, um, rich, provocative, inspiring feedback, and who also are able to use that feedback to iterate their games in amazing ways. So my students can do this. So can you. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. I think that about wraps it up. What do you think? Oh wait, you have a queen. Didn't I ask anything. Do you? Have any- I, I wish I had something. Right now, it's it's like <laughs> this is all great. I'm I'm learning so much. <laughs> I I don't know that I have anything. Because honestly, the the biggest I I think that Monica touched on what's one of the biggest obstacles for geez cat one of the biggest obstacles for other like women in our like position of or or our marginalized i guess people in our position where we would get not necessarily great feedback for from someone who's like perceived to have authority yeah. over us um but i uh i mean i guess the the best i can tell you is like um kick your cat out before you start recording a podcast <laughs> noted and, um, <laughs> Cause she's really, she's needy. She's going to ruin it. <laughs> uh, I think that's it. All right. Listen, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. No, thank you. Well, I, I honestly, I, I was honored when you came on. I'm sorry. I couldn't be there. It was, it was an honor to have you the first time. And it's unbelievable to have you a second time. I can't believe you wanted to come back. <laughs> so thank well, you so much. If, if you're not careful, I will keep coming back because I have many rants in me. That would oh, be amazing. no, how terrible. Exactly. What terrible suffering. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that offline. I know you've got an outro to do. So we got the, uh, the Jessica Hammer show with Ray and Monica going, uh-huh. <laughs> 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 All right, wait, Ray, we're going to do this thing. We're going to do this. Outro? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to mute our guest again. I'm sorry. I'll we'll bring you back on to tell them where you, they can find you. So don't go anywhere just yet. Go for it. Okay. Uh, Monica? Yeah. Where can they find our show? Find our show at bxpcast.com, part of the Misdirected Mark Network. Wink. There okay. we go. Yeah, right. Um, how about email? Where could they email us? If they wanted to email us uh, a question, or if they want to be a guest on the show, just like Jessica was, or uh, anything else like that, they could shoot it to bonusexpcast at gmail.com pictures of your pets please pictures of your yes pets, pictures of your animals also um what about twitter like we're on twitter right 
Yeah, we're on Twitter. Uh, you can tweet at us anything you want to tweet at us to at bonus exp cast. Okay, what about you though? Like you, Monica. Uh, me personally, you. I mean, Monica. if you want to see a Twitter feed full of gaming and political retweets, you can follow me at Zenith Sun. That sounds like a good time. You could follow me too if you want. I'm Ray underscore Cole. I'm a little more active than Monica, but it really evens out because I tweet a lot of bullshit. <laughs> Well, let's uh, bring our guest back in to tell them where yeah. they can Jessica, check out her work. Where can people find your work? Great question. Um, if you want to know what I'm doing, like up to the minute, you can search for me on scholar.google.com. I've got a profile there that lists every, all the papers that I'm writing, and those are meant to be free and available to the public. If you can't find a free copy, you can always uh, uh, drop me a line. My email is available at CMU. And uh, I'll see if I can get your free copy for yourself. Oh, awesome. I also have a lab website. Uh, it's OHOLABCMU, right? So OHLABCMU.wordpress.com. Um, that's for the lab that I share with my colleague, Amy Ogan. And uh, that's slightly less up to date. We tend to update about once a semester, but it's got all the projects that are going on in the lab, some selected publications, and you can learn about my amazing colleagues as well. Because uh, research is not a one-woman band, and I work with some of the most brilliant, talented people I've ever met, who are also the kindest and most generous. Um, and so I want to make sure that everybody gets to see how awesome they are too. Yeah, I know. I know this isn't. I know this isn't the case. But every time you talk about your lab, I imagine. I imagine everyone in like white coats and safety goggles, and you've got. <laughs> Those Erlenmeyer flasks and they're full of little Erlenmeyer flasks full of dice. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> you're uh, holding up the light and turning it. <laughs> we we do we did get uh white lab coats and we wear them every uh uh once once a year when we introduce the lab to the new students and we think we're extremely funny. But other than that, I think it's uh not quite what you're that envisioning. Extremely funny. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You have one of those like like anatomical like human skeletons in the corner, and that sounds like a challenge for my game design class. I should acquire one and require them to make a game with it. Get an emergency <laughs> eye wash. <laughs> I have to say this this past semester, I actually did supervise a project that involved uh, uh, casting a skeleton in resin. So you'd be surprised Whoa. the stuff we get up to. That's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> I I have my dream it's really a dream job i get to do so much weird cool stuff and then share it with the world and hope that other people are inspired by it that's so cool <laughs> that just is really cool well uh um, okay. thank you again for coming on our on our show and making us just a little bit cooler by extension yeah thank <laughs> you for having me and uh for being amazing hosts oh thank you so much um uh, on that note everybody get out okay right, go. <laughs> to be continued <laughs> Remember to change it if you want to. Do I have to do this? Ugh, fine. Bonus Experience is written and produced by Monica and Ray and edited by Margaret. Our logo and art is by Nano Studios. Find her on Facebook and Instagram. Our theme song is Reuse Noise with the Light by CDK and is used under the attribution non-commercial Creative Commons license. BXP is part of the Misdirected Mark Network. Um, I'm not reading this 
fucking gaming pun. Bye. Fucking nerds.